This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Thank you for joining us today to discuss the bombshell Supreme Court rulings last week. We are joined by three eminent scholars today. Uh, first up, we will have Erwin Chemerensky, who is the Dean of Berkeley Law, a position he's held for the past six years. He's authored more than a dozen books and over 200 law review articles. His recent books include Worse Than Nothing, The Dangerous Fallacy of Originalism, published in 2022, and Presumed Guilty, How the Supreme Court Empowered the Police and Subverted Civil Rights, published in 2021. It's hard to imagine being that prolific. He's been named the National Jurist Magazine, uh, by National Jurist Magazine, as the most influential person in legal education in the United States. Also joining us today is Professor John Powell, John A. Powell, who is the Professor of Law, African American Studies, and Ethnic Studies at UC Berkeley, and who is the director of the Othering and Belonging Institute. He is the author of many law review articles and several books, including his most recent, Racing to Justice, Transforming Our Concept of Self and Other to Build an Inclusive Society. Also joining us today is Professor Cheryl Cashin, who is a professor of law, civil rights, and social justice at Georgetown University. She is also the author of several books, including her most recent, White Space, Black Hood, Opportunity Hoarding, and Segregation in the Age of Inequality. And most relevant to today's discussion, Cheryl's 2014 book, Place Not Race, recommends radical reforms to college admissions in order to promote diversity. My name is Stephen Menendian. I am the Assistant Director at the Othering and Belonging Institute and will be your moderator for today's session. Before we invite each esteemed panelist to speak, let me just provide some brief background on these cases. An organization called Student for Fair Admissions challenged these so-called race-conscious admissions plans at two very different institutions, the University of North Carolina, a public university, and Harvard University, a private Ivy League institution. Both UNC and Harvard considered race the race of applicants as one of many factors in evaluating who to admit into their undergraduate bodies. I should emphasize the type of the diversity they sought to inculcate and foster was not simply racial diversity, but multidimensional diversity. These plans were designed and modeled in many ways off of plans that the Supreme Court had upheld previously as recently as 2016 at the University of Texas in a case called Fisher versus Texas, and at the University of Michigan in 2003 in a case called Grutter versus Bollinger. The bases for the challenges were different, however. The challenge to the race-conscious plan at UNC was the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution, and the challenge to the plan at Harvard was Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. The court has now changed course after decades of precedent and held that these specific admissions policies used by Harvard and UNC violate federal law, striking them down. We are going to talk about what the court held, what it means, and what advocates can do going forward in higher education and beyond. Um, before getting into the nitty gritty of what this, what to do going forward, 
Uh, if you have questions for the panel, please post them into the chat and we will pose as many as we can towards the end of the panel. Uh, again, holding off on what to do going forward, let's focus on what this means. Beginning with Dean Chemerensky. Uh, Dean, as the dean of a major public institution, a public law school, what does this mean for institutions of higher education? Generally, what it means is that no longer can colleges, universities use race as a factor in admissions decisions to benefit minorities and enhance diversity. As you referred to, in 1978, in Regents University of California versus Bakke, Justice Lewis Powell wrote the pivotal opinion saying, college universities have a compelling interest every diverse student body. They could use race as one of many factors in admission decisions to benefit minorities and enhance diversity. In 2003, in Grutter versus Bollinger, a majority of the Supreme Court affirmed that. Most recently, in 2016, in Fisher versus University of Texas, Austin, the Supreme Court reaffirmed it. One might wonder what changed in just seven years. Did the court find some musty history of the 14th Amendment that let it believe it made a mistake? What changed was the composition of the court. The three dissenters from Fisher remained, Roberts, Thomas, and Alito. They were joined by the three Trump appointees, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, and that produced the 6-3 decision on June 29th. The Supreme Court never expressly said, we are overruling Bakke, Grutter, and Fisher, but that's exactly what the Supreme Court did. Chief Justice Roberts, writing for the court, rejected the idea that diversity is a compelling interest in admissions. And he said, no longer can any preference be given on the basis of race. Much remains unclear as to the future, but that holding is apparent. So to answer to your question, what's this going to mean? For public universities, it means that they would violate equal protection if they engage in the kind of affirmative action that the Supreme Court previously allowed. For private colleges, it means they'll violate Title VI of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that applies to all institutions that receive federal funds and says they can't discriminate based on race. About 60% of the selective college universities in the country were engaging in affirmative action. That gives you some sense of the dramatic impact of the ruling. The only caveat is for those who are in states that have already abolished affirmative action, these decisions won't make a difference for the public universities there. In California in 1996, Proposition 209 eliminated affirmative action. It says that the state and all of its subparts can't discriminate or give preference based on race or sex in education, contract, or employment. States like Michigan and Washington adopted similar initiatives. So in these places, public schools are already having to do admission and hiring without affirmative action. Last week's decision won't matter for them, but it will matter for private schools in those states because Prop 209 and similar initiatives don't apply to private schools and it'll apply to public universities in all of the states that don't have initiatives like California. The bottom line is this is going to have an immediate devastating effect on diversity in higher education. Thank you, Dean. Uh, Professor Powell, zooming out for just a moment, what do you see is the larger public significance of these rulings? What is the symbolic or communicative import of these decisions? What is the court saying to the public, the political, political community, and to public and private institutions? 
Well, you know, we go back to Brown and the Supreme Court and Brown and several law review articles later made it clear that um, segregation was not just a physical separation of people uh, and I would say segregation of opportunity, but also symbolic. Uh, it sent a message. And the court talked about the negative message associated under Plessy, which was overturned by Brown. Um, and so the court is always in, engaged, especially around issues of race, uh, trying to actually, um, if you will, curate uh, a message about the country and also about our history and about our future. Um, and so for those of you who will be inclined to read the opinion, you'll see uh, it's a history lesson, but it's a very different look at history, uh, going back at least to the Civil War and the Civil War amendments. Um, and so really what we're arguing over is uh, the Equal Protection Clause uh, in the 14th Amendment, and what does that mean? And uh, the meaning is not clear just by reading the Constitution. It has to be interpreted. It has to be uh, given some context. And we have very different contexts. And as Erwin suggested, it's, um, who makes those decisions is critical. Again, you can't read the Constitution by itself and get to where the court is today. Uh, even the fact that we now think of the 14th Amendment as anti-discrimination, those, those words are not in the body of the text. Uh, does it require intent? Uh, that was not decided until fairly recently. Uh, so the court went for over 100 years saying no, or at least left, leaving that question open. And so what's happening is what the court does is it narrows, it says both the dissent uh, and the majority says we are the ones who are really being truly uh, loyal to the original meaning of the Constitution. Uh, I think it's much, much, much more complicated than that. Um, when the Supreme Court in Brown was trying to consider what the original meaning of the Constitution meant in terms of segregation, it did. It actually um, created an effort where to ask historians to do the research. And when it came back, it said it's too complicated. We, you know, we can't really, uh, with confidence, rely on that. So part of this is really about the future, and the country is becoming increasingly diverse. Uh, and how do we deal with that? It's also interesting that one of the things that Powell said in Bakke is that there is such a thing as societal discrimination, but it's too amorphous. You know, we don't really know what it is. So Bakke didn't start off as a diversity case. Uh, it started off as a discrimination case, as looking at the history of discrimination uh, toward non-whites, particularly Blacks. Um, Bakke sort of turned us to look not at discrimination per se, but to look more at diversity. Um, in the dissent, uh, Justice Jackson and others make it clear they want to turn back and look more at that discrimination. So there's a lot that can be said. Well, let me just say this. The American public is actually quite confused. It's a complicated issue, understandably. So if you look at the data, and I did preparing for this talk, this case was brought by Asian Americans. Asian Americans, as a group, favor affirmative action. Let's just think that, let that sink in for a minute. As a group, Asian Americans favor affirmative action. But Asian Americans as a group uh, are not in favor of using race as a plus factor for admissions. So you might say, well, how can you have both of those things? You, you favor it, but then you don't favor the application. 
uh, it's complicated. Part of it is like people don't really understand. Sometimes people don't understand that K-12 continues to be segregated under the imprimatur of the court. And the court saying, unless you can prove that it's intentional and the fact, the fact of segregation uh, is not a constitutional issue right now. Uh, and so we have, again, schools segregated. I'll stop because I know um, Professor Castle will talk about this. And it's not, again, just separating people from each other. It's the segregation of opportunity, or what Cheryl calls opportunity hoarding. Uh, so it, it's a, it's a mercy, messy, messy thing. The court's opinion is important, but it's not the last word. The public will be debating this issue, trying to understand what does fairness and equality really mean? Uh, if it doesn't mean this, it doesn't mean something else. Uh, and that's potentially a useful discussion. We need to have that discussion. Thank you, Professor Powell. Let's bring uh, Professor Cashin in. Professor Cashin, you've written extensively about these issues. Your most recent book really tried to grapple with how do we unwind and remedy structural racism. So given that um, and your other work, what does this ruling mean for non-public institutions and for the larger project of remedying systemic and structural racism? Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, I'm going to answer the, the, the latter part of that question about what does it mean for responding to structural racism? And frankly, public and private entities are implicated in that. And as Irwin made clear, public and private institutions are covered either by the 14th Amendment or by uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. And as a symbolism, this is kind of the way where John started. My, my biggest worry about this case is the symbolism in that I think by putting its official imprimatur on a colorblind constitutionalism, uh, suggesting, I think, errantly, um, that the 14th Amendment demands colorblindness. Um, I think the worst aspect of it is it's going to encourage more litigation by um, very conservative entities. I disagree with John when he says this case was these cases were brought by Asians. These, this case was initiated by, is it Edward Blum or Edward Bloom? Is it Blum or Bloom? Does anyone know? It's spelled B-L-U-M. But anyway, Edward Bloom, I believe, um, this is the seventh or eighth case, seventh and eighth case, that he initiated. He went out and created SSFA uh, and recruited people to join. And his organization has already filed lawsuits challenging DEI, diversity and equity inclusion efforts uh, on the part of corporations and corporate boards. Um, so when it comes to addressing structural systemic inequality, which is the result of a century of intentional government action and intentional anti-Blackness, frankly, um, that's what my, my, my book and research is about. Um, what's frightening to me is that People will use this case to say, under the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act, uh, you can't do things that are race conscious. 
right? And they will they will interpret and go farther than the Roberts majority actually said, right? Um, and 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 so uh, it, it's going to inhibit any actor, state actor or public actor, private entity, um, to from being innovative and bold in trying to remedy structural racism, systemic inequality. And it could be just the political rhetoric around this case will be enough to temper efforts uh, at, at being equality innovators. So, so that, that's um, one of my concerns. And, you know, and, and we already are seeing uh, litigation attacking facially race-neutral efforts to be more inclusive. So I hope that's responsive to your question. Yes, I'm, I'm going to follow up with you uh, before moving back on. But mm-hmm. um, I, think, I think what Professor Powell was referring to was that the plaintiffs that Edward Bloom uh, had drafted into this were ostensibly on behalf of Asian Americans, specifically in the Harvard case. That no, I agree with it, the, the yeah. plaintiffs, but I just want to be clear Yes. I think it should be clear that it was initiated by by Bloom in terms of he's he has developed a career in uh, recruiting people to sue like Abigail Fisher right. and hooking them up with um, um, lawyers who who will represent them. Um, well, let me. I completely agree with you. I mean, this is obviously a long game that's really been in place since Brown. The right wing has been after. Um, was very unhappy with Brown. There was a, a revolt in the country and they've been chipping away at this ever since. Uh, and, and Bloom is just the latest expression of that. And also the notion of structural and system, systemic racism is under attack, which is actually interesting. I mean, if you think about what the court is partially saying, what they've been saying since Washington v. Davis, is that, um, and they said more forcefully in Baki, we don't recognize uh, so, societal discrimination. What we recognize is this too amorphous uh, and and now you have states basically saying you can't teach. I mean, that was one of the heart, one of the aspects of critical race theory was to say a lot of racial hierarchy, a lot of racial subordination is not driven by um, the bigot necessarily or the intentional act. It's actually baked into our structures. That shouldn't be controversial. You know, you think about the American Disabilities Act. It doesn't. You don't have to prove intent. You say. If you go to a building and you don't have a ramp, uh, it's, you have to do something. You don't have to prove that the person who designed the building designed it with the purpose of keeping people in a wheelchair out. You're saying the building is doing that work. And when we look at it, we know through mortgages, through redlining, through zoning, through housing, through there are all these structures that are uh, aligned to create, um, to maintain and exacerbate racial disparities. But the court, for the most part, is saying, we're not going to look at that. You have to prove that someone intended for that, which is crazy. Um, in a sense, from my perspective, critical race theory, to the extent that it relies on structures and systems, actually is is uh, a generous statement in some ways. It's saying, we're not saying white people or anyone is necessarily a bigot. We're saying these systems work in a certain way, and they should be actionable. And and I'll just say quickly, that's what I find most offensive about this opinion, um, that it, it, it says plainly, the Roberts majority, that the 14th Amendment cannot be used to 
remedy, I mean, um, Congress can't invoke the 14th Amendment to remedy societal discrimination. Um, and, you know, it's, it's kind of ironic that uh, the group Black Americans for whom the 14th Amendment was crafted to render them equal citizens, I think now will get the least protection of any group when, um, you know, that we face societal discrimination at every turn, as you, you, you listed it, you know, from mortgages to separate and equal schools and whatever. And, the, and to delegitimate the enterprise of government trying to redress structural, you know, s- segregation. And then, you know, if you take this to its illogical conclusion, then when a school board tries to redraw the districts in a race conscious way to create integrated schools in a way where people who have been advantaged to attend poverty free schools will claim um, colorblindness requires us not to look at that. You know, it's, it's, it's like we're in la la land. Sparkle. I mean, the Supreme court ignores the tremendous difference between using race to harm minorities as opposing using race to remedy past discrimination and enhance diversity. When John Roberts tries to invoke Brown versus Board of Education, he ignores that Brown was dealing with laws that mandated segregation. They were all about subordinating a racial minority, as opposed to what Harvard and North Carolina were doing, which was about trying to remedy past discrimination. It's ahistorical in terms of going back to the 14th Amendment's origins. Mm-hmm. The Congress that ratified the 14th Amendment adopted so many race-conscious programs like the Freedmen's Bureau that we would today regard as affirmative action. The justices who consider themselves originals completely ignore that history. I also think it's worth a mention of how we got to this point. It was Justice Paul and Bakke who rejected the idea that there could be affirmative action to remedy the history of discrimination. And the Supreme Court was then pinned to the corner that affirmative action to be justified had to be based on enhancing diversity. I think that was one of the tragic flaws of Bakke. And now what the Supreme Court has said, you can't have affirmative action for diversity either. So uh, I think we should turn to what do we do about this? What do institutions, what do other corporations? There has been an attack, not just in the courts, but also in the legislatures of many states on DEI, on these various equity initiatives. Um, But let's, let's look forward in two steps. So the first step I want to burrow into where the law may be headed. The second step, what are the specific strategies? What are the possibilities and tactics that equity advocates can use to try to promote diversity, maintain, sustain diversity going forward and foster it within their communities and institutions? On the law, let's, let's start with that. The Roberts Court, particularly with Justice Kennedy on it, had consistently drawn a bright line between uh, policies and the administration of policies that employ racial classifications and those that were merely race conscious but did not employ racial classifications. And the entire framework of strict scrutiny was, in fact, encouraging, if not compelling, the exploration of so-called race-neutral policies in pursuit of racial diversity. Uh, Cheryl, you've written about a, a case that's been bubbling up, I believe, in the Fourth Circuit called Coalition for TJ. Can you speak about where you see this this line is this line going to be blurred or dissolved in the near future? Do you see or do you see this court holding firm that uh, 
that advancing diversity writ large, including racial diversity, is going to be okay as long as there are race-neutral means to achieve it. And we'll start with you, Professor Cashin. Okay, so the number one ranked public high school in the country is uh, Thomas Jefferson High School in um, Fairfax, Virginia. Actually, no, it's it's located in Northern Virginia. Uh, it's a it's a tech uh, STEM oriented school. And after George Floyd was murdered, the uh, Fairfax uh, Board of Education, which got, which manages the school, changed its admission criteria, scrapped. Uh, high stakes uh, entrance exams and basically implemented a policy that's similar to um, a, you know, like the top, top percentage plan in Texas, right? Basically it guaranteed admission to the top 1.5% achievers at all of the feeder middle schools uh, across the region. So everybody would get at least some of their highest achieving students in there. Um, and that transformed the system and, and, and greatly increased racial, um, the, the racial diversity of the entering class uh, and disrupted a process in which basically the most elite feeder schools in one county were, were, were sending the majority of students there. But it did reduce um, Asian representation in the entering class from like 70% to 54%. So um, here, Asian parents sued and the Pacific Legal Foundation helped them. Um, the Fourth Circuit, the lower court and the Fourth Circuit found that this completely facially neutral uh, entrance, new entrance process uh, survived uh, a discrimination challenge on the part of Asians. It didn't violate the 14th Amendment. Um, and uh, the court of I, I commend the court of appeals opinion to anybody who wants to read it. It does suggest um, that uh, pursuing racial diversity, admitting that you're trying to get more racial diversity, uh, will not be fatal as long as you use facially neutral methods, right? And the the, the court in this in the UNC and um, Harvard cases. I think they were intentionally vague. They didn't say explicitly universities continue to have a compelling interest in the racial diversity of their classes. They didn't say that. Um, but they did. The only thing that's abundantly clear is you cannot consider the race of the individual student, right? So I, I do, I, I actually think, I maybe I'm hope, I hope that when this case comes to the Supreme Court challenging the, the, the Four Circuit's reasoning, that even this Roberts majority um, would uphold it, or at least um, Roberts plus Kavanaugh and the three liberals would uphold it, um, suggesting that very innovative, race-neutral, facially race-neutral strategies, like the one at UC Davis's medical school, um, which has a dis which has a, a diverse a disadvantage index that that uh, heavily helps um, uh, disadvantaged people of all kinds could help could survive a, 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 a anti discrimination challenge. I'm sorry, I was so no, that's that's great. So I want to get to the disadvantage index in the in the strategies section, but mm -hmm. sticking with the law for a moment and and bringing this to the dean. The same question, just clarifying for the audience, though, 
that by racial classifications and face neutral, we are saying that where policymakers or administrators use racial classifications, it's the use of race as a selection criterion. Whereas the race neutral mechanisms, even in support or promotion of racial diversity, is non-racial selection criteria. Dean, go ahead. We don't know is the answer to that question. On the one hand, I agree with Cheryl, is what I hope the court will do. On the other hand, I could imagine the Supreme Court saying, if a policy is adopted with the intent of benefiting minorities, and it is the effect of benefiting minorities, then it's treated as a racial classification. Think of the Texas top 10% plan, where they took the top 10% of the high schools in the state, Texas sufficiently segregated, that would produce some diversity. Justice Ginsburg, in an opinion, raised the question of even though that's racially face neutral, would it be regarded as a racial classification? We don't know the answer to the question. In her dissent, Justice Sotomayor said there could be benefits given on the grounds of socioeconomic status. The problem the University of California discovered was just giving a benefit based on socioeconomic status doesn't yield racial diversity. And simple arithmetic explains why. There's a larger percentage of African-American and Latinx individuals who are economically disadvantaged than white individuals economically disadvantaged. But in sheer numbers, there are more white individuals who are economically disadvantaged compared to African-American and Latinx individuals. There's one passage at the end of Chief Justice Roberts' opinion that may open a door to a way to pursue diversity, but it's ambiguous. Let me read you the exact language. Roberts writes, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities considering an applicant's discussion how race affected his or her life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or otherwise. But universities may not simply establish through application essays or other means the regime we hold unlawful today. So if a university says, we're looking at this person's race as a way he or she overcame discrimination or found inspiration based on it, that's okay. It's not okay to give a preference solely based on race. I'm not sure how any court is going to figure out what was permissible and impermissible in that regard. So there may be an avenue open from that language in Robert's opinion. Uh, We're going to shift to the second part of the question now, but I just want to point out that even under Proposition 209, California courts have specifically upheld diversity-enhancing K-12 policies at in Berkeley Unified that use race in a general way rather than as a racial classification. So there is precedent for courts upholding these kinds of things, but uh, it sounds like we're just unsure where this court would land on those those issues. Let's, let's turn to the second part of the question then. Uh, I'm going to start with Professor Powell. Professor Powell, in 2014, you co-authored an article uh, for the Journal of Michigan Law Reform uh, explaining how to construct more sophisticated admissions policies that would look at a number of factors that look something close to what is being proposed in terms of these adversity indices. The SAT had briefly floated the idea of creating an adversity index to go with the SAT score itself, but then after pushback, scuttled that. What do you see as some of the strategies or pathways forward that institutions of higher education or other institutions and policymakers could use more generally? Well, um, and uh, um, your audience may know Stephen has been involved in a number of those efforts. We have a general template, which we call targeted universalism, that actually looks at how people are situated and basically looks at 
what we would call race-neutral factors by and large to sort of say, you know, on one hand, we say race is socially constructed. Um, the question is how? And so uh, it's constructed by uh, how where people live. It's constructed by how people are treated. So part of the thing is to look at those factors. And I guess I would say it's clear under old law that you, and Kennedy encouraged this, that you could construct a matrix of conditions that actually would guarantee uh, racial diversity, including black diversity. Um, so under the old law, that's very doable. I think Erwin is right, we're in this gray area. Part of the problem is this, Stephen, that it's, diversity is not required, affirmative action is not required. And so if you were an institution of higher ed and someone says we can adopt this policy uh, and probably not be in violation of the law, it's pretty clear that the Pacific Foundation and others is going to come after you. It will have a chilling effect. So even if it's permissible, and frankly, I think it is, uh, at least arguably, and I think more than arguably, I think it is, um, it's not a slam dunk. Uh, Are you willing to risk a lawsuit, win, lose, or draw? Lawsuits are very uh, cumbersome, expensive. And so I think if if we want people to actually do some of these innovative things, we have to make, we have to sort of hold them harmless. We have to support them, uh, both in terms of methodology. Uh, and on our website, and um, um, one of the memos that you did, Stephen, in terms of looking at the different ways of thinking about race neutral, uh, targeted race, which ones violate the law, which don't, we talk about a thousand different programs of looking at alternatives. So we certainly could come up with alternatives. The problem is this, this that old thing of people say, you have to jump over a stick in the dark. You don't know how high it is, so you don't know how high to jump. Uh, I would say, under, based on the old stick, we could do this. On the new stick, it's not clear. And, you know, and I don't want to be whatever, vitriolic or whatever, but it's clear to me that the court is not being completely genuine. I would even say completely honest. Uh, and so it's clear that some members of the court uh, would push back uh, and they talk about, I mean, they just radically change precedent without any clear justification. And they say to the institutions, you, the institution, not only has to do this, you have to come up with a way that allows us to measure and hold you accountable. Uh, and they spend a lot of time talking about when will it end? And I say, you know, it's like affirmative action to some extent is like chemotherapy. You have a cancer patient and the patient says, when will the therapy end? And ultimately you say, when the cancer is done. We don't say, you know, we're tired. So we've done, or antibiotic, you know, we've done uh, two rounds, we're going to stop. We said, but the cancer is still here. The disease is still here. The racial stratification, the racial subordination uh, is, is not just here. In some ways, it's accelerating. Uh, last thing, anti-classification is a weird concept. So coming out of Brown, there's a big debate. What's the court doing in Brown? Is it saying segregation is bad? Or is it saying the classification of students is the main injury? And the conservatives wrestled us to the ground, although anti-classification can mean something different, and saying it's noticing race in the first instance by the state that's bad. So, uh, and the court has said, an all-black school that's segregated, that don't have resources, unless you can show intentional classification, it's not an injury. But it's not the segregation, in fact, it's the intention that matters. And that's not the way we live, you know, 
we're, we're living with climate change uh, here in California and across the country. No one intended to change the climate. No one set out to make it hotter. But that's what our actions are doing. And through all the work we do with sociology and uh, implicit bias, we know intent is problematic. Um, but I think we have to, there is some way forward. I think we should pursue those ways, but I think we also have to help institutions that will be gun shy, that will be afraid uh, to move forward and not just run away from this. Bringing uh, the Dean back into the conversation, uh, given again, your role in an institution, a critical institution of higher education, what specific strategies do you think institutions like your own or other similarly situated institutions should employ to sustain or maintain the diversity that they have instead of experiencing these drop-offs? Um, and what, what do you think, what, is, what supports are needed to, to advance those strategies that may or may not exist right now? As I said at the beginning, it's important to remember that public universities in California have had to deal without affirmative action since 1996. Schools in Michigan and Washington State have had to do this. And a lot can be learned from their experiences. And I think those in these public schools have a responsibility to help private and public schools across the country. Keep in mind when you're dealing with admissions, there's those who apply, there's the actual admission decisions, and then there's who you yield. And it, there can be diversity efforts at each of these stages. College universities must much more aggressively create pipeline programs and recruit students of color to apply. We need to find at the admission stages proxies that will yield diversity that the court's likely to accept. And this is what Cheryl was talking about. And we need to have strategies to have those students come. It takes concerted effort. It takes great deal of trial and error. After Prop 209 was adopted in California, the number of Black and Latinx freshmen at UCLA and Berkeley fell by 50%. It took UCLA 19 years from 1996 to 2015 to get back to its pre-1996 levels of diversity. I worry, as John just said, that too many colleges and universities will give up. But there are things that can be done. I'll use my example as an illustration. When I came here as dean in 2017, there were only 12 black students in an area class of about 300. And to me, that was terribly dismaying. And I worried it would create a cycle where we'd attract even fewer black students. We looked at what was our problem. Thankfully, we were getting applications and thankfully we were admitting the students, but they weren't coming here. They were going to other law schools. So we created an aggressive strategy of reaching out to those who we accepted of all races, but targeting those who would be likely to be persuasive to them, alumni, faculty, students. We increased the number of black students from 12 to 28 in a year, to 34 the next year, to 42 the following year. We did not engage in affirmative action. We did not violate Prop 209, but we found a way to achieve diversity. These are the kind of things that schools are going to do across the country. And it can't just be our taking more students away from other schools. We've got to find a way of increasing the pipeline from the very beginning. Thank you. Professor Cashin, we'll um, close out this question with you and then bring some of the audience questions in. But really drilling down, you've, you've thought a lot about this, um, you know, from adversity indices to race proxies to other tools and tactics, and not just within higher ed, but what can corporations, what can cities and hiring strategies do? What do you see 
uh, what do you see as the most promising tactics or strategies for promoting or sustaining diversity in light of this decision? Well, I, I want to note that Republicans and Democrats together came up with the invita- in innovation of top percentage plans, right? Uh, it was the Texas top 10% plan. Now it's the top 6% plan. Uh, Republicans who represent uh, working class districts that were not there, none of their kids were getting into UT Austin support this plan. Okay. So there's a politics there. There's top percentage plans in Florida. I think there's one in, in, in California. Um, I, I think that um, people should try to adopt these formal top percentage plans and build bipartisan coalitions among uh, people who represent mutually low opportunity, mutually locked out places, um, um, build them, put them in place, build a coalition for, for them. Um, they, they do help create diversity. They're not a panacea. I think standardized tests should be optional. Um, alternatives. I'm not saying these are a proxy for race. These are just a proxies that can create diversity, right? Um, zip code or school disadvantage, acknowledging that overcoming structural disadvantage is itself merit. It's itself a form of, 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 of you know, showing resilience, right? So, uh, so place-based um, um, plus factors. Plus, I prefer low wealth versus low socioeconomic as a factor because Low wealth reflects the century of structural disadvantages, um, anti-Black intentional policies that reduce the possibilities for Black Americans and others to develop wealth. Um, I would scrap legacy preferences, as hard as that is to say, as a mom who's got two Black boys who are about to apply to college. But um, I, I, I think the, the, the political case um, for scrapping these preferences have never been higher right now. And a lot of places that um, have banned affirmative action a while ago um, um, have gotten rid of legacy preferences. As to corporations, um, if you care about diversity, it is t- at least in theory neutral to recruit more at HBCUs, at, at colleges that have, you know, community colleges, at places that have high populations of historically underrepresented people. You can do that, and that's not race per se. And I'll stop there. And, and those were strategies that were also mentioned by members of the court in this decision, partnering mm-hmm. with community colleges and so forth. We've got some great questions from the audience and keep them coming in. Um, one of the questions is, is, is this going to trigger a larger rethink Around higher education in general, you've mentioned scrapping legacy uh, admissions. This was something that came up in the Harvard cases case. Um, but one of the questions specifically here under that header was, did the University of California's dropping the SAT ACT requirement have any known effect on the demographics who applied and who were admitted? And an interesting sort of codicil of that is that um, the uh, the personal statement then takes on somewhat greater significance. And that's something that uh, that the court opinion here left open as uh, could, could be a little bit more race conscious as long as it wasn't race specific. So I'll invite anyone 
who knows the answer to that question about what effect these SAT, ACT have and will this trigger a larger rethink? So, Stephen, let me let me jump in here and say a couple of things. First of all, what Cheryl said is, is really important because these are not just legal questions. These are political and normative questions. Uh, and we shouldn't just uh, concede uh, the courts made a decision, so now we can do whatever. I mean, what, what do we want and mean as a society that's deeply fractured, deeply polarized, uh, uh, including along racial lines? Um, and it's also interesting to note that Justice Robinson, a footnote, basically said, we're not saying the military. This doesn't apply to the military. He's saying that diversity might be important uh, in military. Military argues that it's a matter of national security. And the question is, if it's so important in the military, in order to have a well-functioning military, why isn't it important in higher ed? Uh, If we defer to our generals and admirals, why won't we defer to our chancellors and presidents? I mean, this uh, the uh, these to me are clearly political questions, clearly political questions, and the court is is stepping into, uh, as a number of the sense said, uh, political realm. So I think I think it should be a rethink. I think we should think about who I, who we are as society, uh, how do we live up to our best values, and where we're going. And a society where large groups of people historically shut out, continue to be shut out, is extremely problematic. We should not rest on our laurels with that. And I think leaders. And the final thing I'll say is that these are complicated questions. With uh, I think we should actually. Not too much time, but we should develop strategies to figure out how to respond in a complicated, sophisticated way. And as Erwin suggested, we need to then track it to see if it's working. Um, with the SATs and, and other standardized tests, we it's, it's probably too soon to really have some um, to know. It will take some time. Um, and the last thing I'll say is this. All these students we're talking about are more than capable of doing the work. We're not talking about letting in students who aren't qualified. We're talking about students. Uh, there was one a couple few years ago. There were 900 students in California that had perfect grades who couldn't get into Berkeley and, and UCLA because uh, the entering class was like 4.3, meaning you take AP classes. So there were schools where they were not AP classes. Uh, they had done everything they could have done, and those students would have been profoundly successful if they'd come to Berkeley and. UCLA. So we have a system that's really skewed in some ways. And part of it is that we're not providing enough opportunity. All those students should have access to better schools. Uh, but yes, I hope this is a larger discussion that we engage in. I very much agree with John, and I especially want to emphasize what he said. It's too soon to know whether eliminating standardized tests or going to test optional will enhance diversity or maybe even hurt diversity. So far, diversity has increased at Berkeley without standardized tests but it was also increasing even when there were standardized tests. You mentioned, for example, Stephen, looking at essays. We can do that in a law school where we get 8,000 applications, but Berkeley for its freshman class got 150,000 applications. Reading essays and giving them substantial weight becomes much more difficult in that context. Um, So I think that what John says is we need to have a much more systematic rethinking of admissions processes and looking at standardized tests a part of that. We've got to look at all of the factors and deciding who gets into very selective colleges and universities. Since it's so difficult for many of these faculty admissions and review committees, which are maybe 
small staffed, understaffed, and overwhelmed with applications. Should there be another institution like the College Board, which had, again, proposed this adversity index, should someone step into the breach, much like there has now a common application to help facilitate and support these efforts? And what would, if so, what would that look like in your opinion? I think that's one of many avenues to pursue. I think trying to come up with an adversity index is going to be very political, as John said, and tremendously controversial. But I would welcome the college board or at the law school level, the law school admissions council, working to develop that. And I would hope that multiple different approaches would be developed so we can see what works best. But again, I go back to what John says. It's time to carefully study, time to carefully rethink all aspects of the admissions process. Professor Cashin, same questions. I'm sorry, you got to repeat the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I, so just given how difficult it is, uh, the burden on many of these institutions and these faculty admissions committees, what supports are needed to help them sustain and promote diversity? And, and also what, you know, what other, what, can other institutions do? So should the college board, should the law school admissions council, um, should, what what is needed now in the wake of this decision? And what do you think about the larger rethink? Yeah, so I, I don't profess to be an expert on the specifics of, of well, let me just say, would it be useful for third parties to develop model indices that make it easier for an institution to adopt, you know, this diversity index or that one or this disadvantage index. Yes. You know, um, and it would, in the, what will happen if you have multiple players trying to do that and offer it up, right. Eventually perhaps one will emerge as the easiest, most effective way of, of, of doing this. And I do think in this moment where, you know, inequality has spiked in the same decades in which affirmative action has been attacked, right? That there will be a broad constituency of struggling people, working class people, middle-class people who would support the idea of an adversity index um, because, you know, a very small sliver of metropolitan populations live in the highest opportunity places, and it's their practices um, that reify, you know, it's it, a lot of the practices of the admissions process, um, particularly calling a standardized test score merit, um, reify existing advantage, particularly the wealth of, of, of the parents. So, um, so I think the, the short answer is yes, that would be helpful. I want to say, and then I'll be quiet. Um, there's a part of me that worries that so much energy is going to be spent on trying to innovate around admissions to highly selective places when this moment also could be used to mobilize a politics say, why don't we start disrupting the separate and unequal pipeline? And yes, why don't we, like our competitors in OECD countries, uh, create a politics to put more resources into the most disadvantaged places? Um, well, well, Professor Cashin, we don't want you to be quiet. We want you to continue contributing. But also, one of the things that that what, that universities discovered is that when the common application was created, that made it easier for 
students to apply to multiple universities, the number of applications skyrocketed in any mm-hmm. given institution. Um, so it can facilitate and make things easier on the one hand. On the other hand, it can actually increase the burden. But I think the challenge is these admissions committees just don't have a lot of the contextual data that you have mentioned. You pointed out wealth. The federal government doesn't even collect systematic longitudinal data on wealth. There's a survey called the uh, administered by the uh, Federal Reserve called the Survey of Consumer Finances. So where can they get this data if these other institutions don't step in or if it isn't you know, supplied otherwise? John, so, I, I go ahead. So two things, Stephen. One, um, you know, we've been saying that let me just look at this carefully. And I think we should, you know, so we don't have to solve it on, on you know, uh, I mean, the country, we've done incredible things when we put our mind to it, how quickly we came up with uh, a vaccine for COVID. Uh, so it's, I have no doubt that if we wanted to do it, we could do it. It would be costly. It would be, but it should, you know, take a little time. But at the same time, it's deeply, deeply political. It's not like if we come up with a way to promote diversity, think about it. There are half a dozen states right now that the concept of diversity itself is under attack, that, that the equity is under attack. And so from my perspective, the right is not done. They're going to keep pushing. And so part of it is for us to put a stake in the ground and say, this is who we are as a country. Uh, this is what we believe in. We believe a country has to be open to everyone. And we believe our history matters. And we believe, so uh, So I think, it, I guess what I'm saying, is not just the technical problem. It is that. And the court keeps changing the conditions. Okay, you have to do this. You have to do that. Prove this, prove that. Uh, um and, you know, Erwin made reference to it. We're living under the Trump court. This, you know, and a lot of us, myself included, not a big fan of Trump. Um, probably some of the listeners are. Uh, but this is Trump's court. Um, and they're not done. Uh, and it just shows how important the court is. And they are, dealing, as uh, Kagan said, Justice Kagan, uh, in a case that was just decided, this about the... Um, student loans, uh, she's saying, you know, we've gone way beyond constitutional law. We're venturing into a whole other area, meaning the court. So I think we have to sort of broaden this discussion. In this case, I agree with uh, Professor Kasson. It's not just even bringing in different populations. We really are at a pivotal point in the country. This is more than about affirmative action. This is more than about what happens to uh, high-performing Black and Latino students. It's what happens to America. Well, we have time for, I think, about one more question. Um, I think it would be uh, a mistake if I didn't take the opportunity to ask the dean, who has written a book about originalism, about, and zooming in for a moment, the dialogue between Justice Jackson and Justice Thomas over the original intent of the 14th Amendment, which was not really taken up by the majority of the court, but this very interesting dialogue between uh, the dissenter and concurrence. Um, Dean, what do you make of that? And given your critique of originalism, what's your overall view of this? I was surprised at how sharp the tone was in the exchange between them. It's obvious that they draw very different lessons from history and from their own life experiences. I think originalism is terribly flawed as a theory. And one of the reasons is that conservative justice professed to be originalists follow it when it gets to the results they want and ignore originalism when it doesn't get the results they want. And I think the court's decision, the affirmative action case is such an example of that. The history of the 14th amendment, if we wanted to follow originalism 
would lead us to approve race-conscious programs to remedy discrimination. I mentioned earlier things like the Freedmen's Bureau created at the time. It's telling to me that the originals on the court, including Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch and Justice Barrett, pay no attention to that history. And John, you opened uh, by mentioning that one of the larger backdrops of this is the meaning of equality. I wonder if you and Professor Cashin could speak about the different sort of expressions of that as we close out. Yes, and you know the Constitution. I mean, so interesting. Many I won't go into uh, Irwin's expertise, but many originalists go back to the original Constitution and they ignore the Civil Rights Constitution, which was a real break. I mean, there was a very different uh, mood in Congress. Uh, it was much more what we now call liberal or progressive, um, but also the very concept of equality. I mean, it's interesting that. that Lincoln made mention in the Gettysburg Address, made suggestion that the Constitution was flawed, the original Constitution was flawed because it didn't embrace equality. He actually referred back to the Declaration of Independence, where Thomas Jefferson penned the concept of equality, where he says, uh, we hold certain truths to be self-evident. Uh, and he said, all men, he meant men. Uh, but we've been fighting over what equality meant, meant ever since then. And as you know, Stephen, I'm working on an article now, our concept of equality largely comes from uh, Aristotle. And Aristotle recognized uh, equality. He said, fairness and justice requires that when people are situated the same, you treat them the same. But fairness and justice requires when people are situated differently, you treat them differently. That's Aristotle. And, and what the court has refused to do is to acknowledge that some people are situated differently. It's like, we're going to treat everybody the same. We're going to be colorblind. We're really saying we're going to be contextually blind. We're going to be structurally blind. We're going to be institutionally blind, which locks in the status quo. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't give up on equality. It's really an incredible concept, relatively new in modern society, with the United States and France being the two countries that embraced it. But we have to interpret it. We have to reinterpret it and not leave it up to the courts uh, or even historians to say what equality means. It's an important concept, a uh, founding concept in our country. Um, and I think... Uh, even harkening back to Aristotle, he still has something to teach us. And Professor Cashin, we'll give you the last word. Well, it's impossible to follow John Powell, isn't it? <laughs> but let me just say, I, I agree with um, much of what he said, right? The radical Republicans uh, that drafted the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, but the 14th Amendment in particular, introduced the concept of equality into our constitution for the first time you know the, it, we didn't have it we had the declaration of independence but there was no constitutional guarantee of equal protection or equality at the founding and the only reason we got that amendment is because we had a civil war that killed 600,000 people and the and the confederates had seceded and were not in congress at the time right so we had in congress at the time for the first time in the history of this country, a Congress which was not committed to slavery, right? So now we're like, you know, the second founding, right? We're actually saying, okay, so if slavery's off the table, what's the society we want to create, right? And this court has been hostile to the project of Reconstruction from the very first day. 
You know, in some ways we were fooled by the Warren Court. We got the Warren Court who was with that program, but the norm for this court has been hostility to the radical Republicans' beautiful, robust conception of equality and a federal government that would actively make that happen, right? And colorblindness really is bringing us back to Plessy and separate but equal, where we sort of pretend there's no structural inequality and 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 disallow lower courts or or political actors to acknowledge and try to remedy what's going on. So you think I'm upset about this? Well, we're all disappointed with this decision, but there is hope. There are possibilities. I think we've covered a lot of interesting ideas um, and there's more to come. I'd like to thank these phenomenal panelists, Professor John Powell, Dean Chemerensky, Professor Cashin. This has been a production of the Othering and Belonging Institute. We'd also like to thank uh, the Berkeley Law School for sponsoring this. And we have uh, a legal guidance that we're issuing today that can provide some uh, suggestions and helpful uh, guidance looking forward for institutions who are trying or grappling with these issues. We'll drop that in the chat right now. And thanks to all of you for joining us today on this beautiful Monday right before the 4th of July holiday. So please take good care and we look forward to seeing you again in the future. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. 